Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This episode is a bonus episode, a re-release of last year's August Fair Folk Almanac. The Fair Folk Almanac is an episode that I share every month with just my Patreon subscribers. And in the episodes, I share information about seasonal traditions from various Northern and Eastern European traditions in an effort to help us realign ourselves with real time, that is, the time of the seasons and of spirit, the earth and our bodies on it. I decided to share this episode in the spirit of harvest, because this is the time of year when the harvest begins. And this episode is about Lunasa, the particularly Irish expression of an ancient Celtic festival celebrating the start of the harvest and the god Lu. It's been really illuminating re-listening to this episode before I shared it, because my work on the almanac and in general has been changing a lot in the last year, especially in the last couple of months. I am moving towards a more improvised form of the podcast. My Almanac episodes are now entirely improvised. I work from notes from the research that I've done, and I no longer read from a script as I used to do. So listening to this episode where I did read from a script, I noticed um, that I was privileging information over presence, I suppose. There's nothing wrong with that because part of the podcast's purpose is to share information and to demonstrate what an abundance of information there truly is. However, um, I'm also working now in my personal life and in the podcast on finding a balance between personal intuition and uh, being in time on the earth in the moment and the amazing cavalcade of facts and information that is available on folklore and paganism both. One of the reasons that I'm beginning to adopt this more improvisational tone is because I feel in this time of social distancing, I want to be closer with my audience. I want to be more present with you in the moment. Um, I think that there is a formality to reading a script that is sometimes unnecessary. And I'd like to demonstrate to myself and to you that I trust myself to speak freely from the information that I have and the wisdom that I contain as a human on the earth. I also am really interested in how I can participate better, how we can all participate better in the oral tradition by relying less on written text and giving ourselves moments when we can be vulnerable in speech and in song without needing to refer to an external authority. So thank you for being here with this experiment and with me. And I encourage you to experiment with these things yourself. If you're someone who works a lot with text, with reading and with writing, are there moments in your life when you can step away from that and trust that you'll be able to work from your own inner knowing and uh, do justice to the texts that you draw on, whether they are written or oral? in that moment. I'm learning that being really present in the moment with speech and with song and with improvisation in general is a way to move away from the fear of being incorrect, because having done numerous academic degrees, um, that's, that's been a part of my understanding of reality and how to demonstrate authority for many years. And as much as I do feel that <laughs> scholarly correctness has value, um, this, this space of the podcast and of spiritual development and reconnecting with the past should be a creative space, and it should be a safe space for all of us to experiment in and to really get insight into how our ancestors experienced the world. And our ancestors were illiterate, most of them. Um, and so they would have experienced the world in a slightly different way with regards to language, in a less instrumentalized way, perhaps, um, in ways where they were building tools into themselves and their own minds and bodies in order to remember things, as opposed to writing them down or picking them up out of a book. This episode is such an interesting case study in that, because 
it draws mostly on a book by Moira McNeil. And I apologize if I mispronounce her name throughout the episode. There are a number of Irish words I'm unfamiliar with that I had to attempt. And uh, apologies if you're an Irish speaker. <laughs> but um, I do my best. And I hope that I'm understandable at least. So this book, The Festival of Lunasaw by Myra McNeil, was published in 1962. And uh, her main thesis, once you get to the end of this massive book about everything about Lunasaw, this festival on August 1st in Ireland, she comes to this amazing point that much of the folklore about the god Lu, who was evidently an important figure, as the festival is named after him, was absorbed later by St. Patrick, who, as you know, is the primary saint in Irish Catholicism, I would say, and folklore. So a lot of the stories about St. Patrick originated in stories about Lou, which is quite incredible and is a testament to the amount of information that's available about these ancient traditions sort of right under our noses um, and in the guise of other things. I really love that about this book, and not everybody agrees with her central thesis, but um, I do, and <laughs> I'm willing to go with it until I'm convinced otherwise. I think it's a beautiful idea um, and very well argued. So if you're interested in looking more into the subject and other articles and books that have cited this in later years, go for it. I'm really curious to hear what you find. Share it with me anytime. So this episode is about the beginning of harvest, and my understanding of harvest has been changing to include a sense of personal abundance and a sense of, let's say, enlarged understanding of my own ability to experience the past in the present without so many external tools, such as facts and books. I'm going to continue using facts and books in the episodes of this podcast. I want to be clear about that. But I am becoming very interested in how we can approach these facts in ways that are less grasping and less worrying about loss. I think sometimes we compile and hoard facts when we are concerned about losing them. And this is a very reasonable reaction to traditions that are disappearing. However, I think that when we approach traditions from a place of love and trust, that we are more likely to see them unfold for us in ways that are much more nourishing and much more embodied and more sustainable than they have in the past. So here's to that. Here's to a new understanding of harvest in the information age, when information is virtually unlimited. Um, how can we think about information now in ways that are expansive and liberating? Um, this is my question for you. As you listen to this episode about ancient information sharing, which is somewhat what the god Lou is about. I'll share a couple of notes with you that I noted um, in re-listening to the episode just now. I use the word corn in the episode to refer to grain in general, um, maybe in error at times, because uh, reading older texts, sometimes corn is just a stand-in for everything. Um, and corn wasn't the primary grain in the Irish diet, I don't think, at any point. Typically, oats were the most prominent um, until 1600, when gradually, or around 1600, when gradually potatoes replaced them as a staple in the diet. So you'll see the folklore may sometimes refer to potatoes as the main harvest, and other times it will refer to grain or corn. If you're interested in listening to more of these Patreon Almanac episodes, of course, sign up to be a patron to the podcast. At the $5 tier level, you get access to all of the past Almanac episodes and every Almanac as it comes out, as well as various other things as they come up, such as playlists. So, I offer you this episode in the spirit of the harvest, in the spirit of the abundance of the past itself, and the abundance of being on the earth in real time.
If you're listening to this episode when it first came out, it should be a couple of days before the beginning of August, the height of the heat of summer. In many places, it is incredibly hot right now, and intensity is high. Solar energy is flying around and making things grow green and lush and thick. Fruit is heavy on the trees and bushes. The berries continue bursting into being in the forests and on the hills. This is one of my favorite times of year, and I tend to feel more physically energized now than I do at other times. This episode will focus on the great, big, beautiful holiday that falls in the first week of August, which has been a high point in the Celtic calendar for millennia. This holiday is called Lammas in England and Scotland, and Lunasa in Ireland, the feast of the shining sun of the first precious golden loaf. In English, Lammas is a later form of the Old English word for loaf mass, in reference to the fact that the early church would consecrate the loaves of bread made from the first ripe grain at this time. In Irish, Lunasa is a gathering for the god Lu, who is responsible for teaching the people of Ireland how to harvest the grain and for maintaining the four quarters of the year with the harvest at their peak. Evidence shows that it was previously celebrated in the Celtic areas of the European mainland as well, though nowadays its manifestations like most of Celtic culture, has been localized to those islands west of Europe, and has been scattered into disparate pieces by the forces of time in the Christian calendar. Despite the decline of the holiday in the Christian era, I can say with total certainty that this was an extremely widespread pagan holiday, and one that continued to be celebrated for many centuries afterward, in a very similar style. Unlike many pre-Christian holidays, there is a huge amount of information remaining about Lunasa from myth, legend, folk tradition, and the stories of saints' lives. There are reports of Lunasa celebrations at no fewer than 195 sites in Ireland, and obviously there were many more that simply left no record. I would like to unite them all again here for you, and present to you this episode on the Great High Holiday of Lunasa, in as much completeness as one can give it in a brief podcast episode. So for the sake of brevity, I'll focus mostly on Ireland, and mostly on the pre-Christian tradition. Despite the holiday's decline in the last two centuries, it is unusually clear from the historical record that this festival was virtually universal to Celtic peoples from as early as 3000 BCE, and for those Celts, was one of the most celebrated moments of the year. In agricultural societies, the success of the harvest is, crucially, the basis for the survival of a community. Grain can be stored for the entire duration of winter when no fresh food presents itself. No grain would mean starvation come winter. August is also a period of high activity, not only for humans but also in the vegetable and animal worlds. It's also a period of mobility. People would historically range far and wide to different locations and to fairs, to ply their many trades, to forage for food, and also to visit sacred sites. Therefore, the first week of August is the start of the climax of the agricultural year in England, France, Ireland, and other countries on the same latitude. In Scotland, the harvest comes a little later, but the Lammas celebration falls on the same date nowadays. It's also when lambs are ready for slaughter, and when the most mushrooms, berries, and other fruit and vegetables reach their highest potency and number making this month one full of a variety of food sources for those who live closely on the land. But beyond that bare fact of survival, success in the growth and harvest of the grain is also an opportunity to meditate on the triumph of life over death, of the golden light of the sun that is reflected in the golden colour of the grain over the forces of darkness and loss. It's when the earth shows just how much it can offer in the way of food, light, sound and diversity. But of course, with bounty comes sacrifice, and August is the first of three harvest months in Northern Europe. As the material height of the arc of life in the year's wheel, it also contains the beginning of its slow dip into the realm of death. Therefore, the main focuses of the folktales, mythology, and folk song of the month of August, in Ireland at least, are variety, bounty, strength, protection, excess, sacrifice, freedom, sovereignty, and all things gold and edible. In this episode, I'll present a survey of the gods and symbols that feature in Lama's Tide, or Lunasa, and I'll give an account of the legendary and mythological grounding of the festival. Then, I'll give an overview of the main ways that folks celebrated this occasion in the past. 
Finally, as usual, I'll include my own suggestions for ways this holiday could be adapted to the means and the needs of our time. There's also a fair amount of music in this episode, which I always enjoy, and I hope brings you enjoyment as well. The main feature of the traditional Lunasaw celebration in Ireland is a sizable gathering of people from a large area at a remarkable natural feature in the center of the region, either on a height, at a body of water, like a lake or a river, or at a holy well. Most often, though, these gatherings took place on hills, and sometimes on the top of a mountain, like Ireland's famous pilgrimage route, Crowpatrick, whose pilgrims climb on the last Sunday of July, called Reek Sunday. It doesn't seem to matter how high the height is where the assembly takes place, as long as it has a broad view. A common description of these locations concerned how many counties were visible from the hill, which, because of how widespread it was, probably comes from before the time of counties in Ireland. Maybe this is because it was the home of the weather god, and has a greater scope for viewing the travel of clouds and rain across the land, but I'll talk about that more later. Catholics climb Crowpatrick, as I said, in droves on the last Sunday of July, a walk which is a continuation of the thousands of years old congregations at this site to celebrate Lunasa on a similar date. Sometimes a Lunasa site will be a combination of two natural features instead, like a hill with a lake or a spring on top. And sometimes the hillside will also have a cave that features in the legends associated with the place. The cave is an opening into the earth, and this festival is about asking or demanding things from the earth in order that the yearly cycle can continue. In more recent centuries, once people met at the assigned place, they would play instruments or sing, they would dance, they would stage fights, play games, pick berries, tell stories and court one another. Many large-scale fairs were also held at this time in England, Scotland, and Ireland, in more accessible locations, of course. At these fairs, goods were sold, people came to look for work in the harvest, old friends met, trial matches were made between young folks, sometimes chosen blindly, as in Telltown, by clasping hands through a hole in a wooden gate. People would have a feast of the first fruits, which at this time in history were potatoes, and make sure everyone had a portion of the root vegetables and berries that are in abundance after the hungriest period of the year in July. In addition to its celebration in Ireland, Scotland, and England, it is pretty clear that Lunasaw was celebrated in Gaulish Rome on the 1st of August at Ludgadunum, modern-day Leon. Other places in the Celtic world outside Ireland also refer to likely sites for the festival, like Leon, Loudon, and Leiden. In ancient times, Irish legend and myth suggest that this festival involved the sacrifice of a bull and the staging of its resurrection, a ceremony concerning the first cutting of the corn, a reenactment of a battle between two gods for the fruits of the earth, and the same hill climbing and great fairs and matchmaking of the modern festival, and of course, singing and dancing. This is the Scottish traditional song Corn Rigs, performed by the Swedish duo Us and Them.
The god for whom the festival is named is Lu, a young god of many skills, a trickster, a king of the other world, and a generous leader, associated with hills, with light, with rain and thunder, with travel and with shoemaking. But he wasn't the only character in the drama of the harvest. The other main player is an older god, dark and bent and miserly, whose home is under the ground, where he keeps the corn and all of the fruits of the earth, and it's Lu's job to get that corn from him and share it with the rest of us. The date of the festival nowadays is August 1st, though many of the activities that took place in the earlier festival have since been spread out on nearby Sundays, such as the hill climbing and berry picking, which now occur on the last Sunday of July in Ireland in those places or families where they're still considered traditional. In some places, elements of the festival occur on the first Sunday of August, and in some, it has also been celebrated on August 12th. The date will have changed over time due to the shift between calendars. It's not clear how the date of Lunasa was determined in pre-Christian times, though it's possible it would have been a combination of a solar and lunar calculation that decided it. We know that new moons were appropriate times in Ireland for beginning a celebration, so it may be that Lunasa would have fallen on the second new moon after the summer solstice. In that case, it would fall on July 31st this year. However, there's no certain way to know that, and moreover, the sun's activity would be more important than the moon in determining the ripening of the corn, which was the key motivator for this festival. What is most important to remember, I think, if you're planning to celebrate Lunasa this year, is that the festival is one of the beginning of the harvest, of the most important crop to a group of people. The date would have been standardized only in order to facilitate large gatherings, so if you're thinking of celebrating it, and you're not trying to coordinate a large group of people, you may as well celebrate the thing when the harvest begins where you live, which as far as I know could range anywhere from mid-July to September in the Northern Hemisphere. England lacks evidence for the earlier festivities aside from an incredibly rich collection of stories about a specific bear in Morva in Cornwall, whose legends about a battle between giants strongly resemble the mythology found in Ireland and demonstrate clearly the shared root to the festivities in both places. In France, because the harvest was much earlier there, much of the festivities landed on St. Anne's or St. Christopher's Day, July 25th. Blessing of the first fruits featured in their celebrations, as well as gatherings on hilltops. In Scotland, Lammas was not typically celebrated on heights, but some amazing prayers said on the occasion of the cutting of the first sheaf were collected there, probably from the Hebrides, that have the feeling of the pre-Christian tradition about them. Here is a description of the first cutting of the corn. The day the people began to reap the corn was a day of commotion and ceremonial in the townland. The whole family repaired to the field dressed in their best attire to hail the god of the harvest. Laying his bonnet on the ground, the father of the family took up his sickle, and facing the sun, he cut a handful of corn. Putting the handful of corn three times sunwise round his head, the man raised the Ayalak Buana, reaping salutation. The whole family took up the strain and praised the god of the harvest, who gave them corn and bread, food and flocks, wool and clothing, 
health and strength, and peace and plenty. When the reaping was finished, the people had a trial called Casting the Sickles and Trial of the Hooks. This consisted, among other things, of throwing the sickles high up in the air and observing how they came down, how each struck the earth, and how it lay on the ground. From these observations, the people augured who would remain single and who was to be married, who was to be sick and who was to die, before the next reaping came round. And here is a blessing said during that first cut, also recorded in Scotland. On Tuesday of the feast at the rise of the sun, and the back of the ear of the corn to the east, I will go forth with my sickle under my arm, and I will reap the cut, the first act. I will let my sickle down, while the fruitful ear is in my grasp. I will raise mine eye upwards. I will turn me on my heel quickly. Right way as travels the sun, from the air to the east to the west, from the air to the north with motion slow, to the very core of the air to the south. I will give thanks to the King of Grace for the growing crops of the ground. He will give food to ourselves and to the flocks, according as he disposes to us. Regarding the first act of harvesting, an interesting feature of Lunasaw custom in Ireland concerns the date that people ought to begin digging potatoes. By the way, potatoes replaced corn in the folklore of this holiday in most parts of Ireland when potatoes replaced corn as the main staple in the Irish diet in the 18th and 19th centuries. The date of the beginning of the harvest varied regionally, but there was agreement that it was considered shameful or even dangerous to dig potatoes before the festival's start. Many believed that if you put iron in the ground before Lunasa, it would cause damage or disease to the crop. This custom likely derives from one or two features of the pre-Christian festival. First, it's pretty clear that previously people would offer a tithe or a sacrifice of the first fruits to one of the gods of the festival. Secondly, there remained in popular belief an idea that the fairies take the top 10% of the harvest and keep it for themselves, storing it in rocks or in hills, which happened to be the places where Lunasa was most frequently celebrated. The idea of burying something, or of a storehouse underground, are central to the mythology of Lunasa, and I'll return to this theme in a bit. The holiday has many different names in Ireland, partly because of the fact that it was broken up into constituent Sundays around the 1st of August. The popular name was Garland Sunday, which seems to have been imported from England, though one lone folklorist explained that the garland in Garland Sunday referred to garlands of corn that were worn in honor of the goddess of the corn, but there's no indication of where he found this information, so it's possible he may have invented it, or he was mistaken somehow since there's no other analogues found to this idea. The day also went by Heatherberry Sunday, Baleberry Sunday, and other names referencing the picking of berries on heights. Lunasa was not the most important festival of the year in Ireland, maybe, but it was the most joyful. Midsummer may seem like a happy occasion, but it was actually the most anxiety-ridden of them all, because it was when food stores began running out, and there was no certainty yet about the status of the coming harvest. As I've mentioned before, I think many of the customs of early months of the year are designed to protect and enhance the well-being of the animals and plants and ensure their abundance later. When it comes to the harvest, nothing was certain until Lunasa. This is The Band of Shearers by Carla Siaki.
first and cold And we'll count our thraves among you loud When we join the band of As I said, Lunasa means the gathering, or the games of Lu. The most common story of the festival's origin says Lu instituted the festival at one of the main sites, Telton, in honor of his foster mother, Teltu. Another story says it commemorates his two wives, Nas and Bui. He was also known as the most brilliant member of the Tuaha de Danan, a young god that uses his many skills to disrupt the established order and champion the cause of humankind. He was said to have invented chess, ball play, and horsemanship. He was also supposed to have been born in the Irish equivalent of Avalon, and is the father of Cúchulainn, the legendary warrior. Stories connect Lu with the god Baelor, who in some accounts has a baleful, or fatal eye, meaning you would die if he looked at you. There was a prophecy he would be killed by his grandson, so he kept his beautiful daughter, Enya, locked in a tower so she couldn't produce any offspring. Luckily, though, a young man managed to magically make it into the tower and have sex with Enya, and, in some accounts, all of her attendants. Baylor, after the babies were born, wrapped them in a cloth and dropped them into the sea. Enya's baby, Lou, survived, and the others became the race of seals. Later, when Lou was grown up, he heard Baylor bragging at the smithy where he worked about killing his father, which he had done, and in response, Lou kills Baylor by stabbing a glowing hot iron rod into his baleful eye. In another story, Lou, a young stranger and master of many crafts, temporarily replaces another king of the gods, Brez, because he was not adequately providing for his people. Baylor later becomes a part of an army fighting against the Tuaha de Danan when this occurs, and Lou kills him in battle by slinging a stone at his baleful eye, which thrusts it into the back of his head, grotesquely killing all of his followers behind him because the eye's gaze fell out the back of his head onto them. After this battle, Brez was captured, and Lu demanded that he give the Tuaha de Danan supernatural spoils related to farming to win his freedom. Brez offers them unlimited milk, and Lu declines. Then he offers a harvest in every quarter of the year. Lu declines this as well, saying, This has suited us. Spring for ploughing and sowing, summer for strengthening the corn, autumn for the ripeness of corn and reaping, winter for consuming it. Then Brez offers Lou advice on ploughing, sowing, and reaping, and Lou finally accepts. Myra McNeil, the author of the book from which I took most of the research for this episode, says, The story clearly contains a harvest myth, in which the secret of agricultural prosperity is wrested from a powerful and reluctant god by Lu. This theme echoes throughout much of the folklore of this holiday, from the pagan era to the present. One early Irish Denshenka's poem seems to associate Lu with the sun, saying a red colour used to be on him from sunset till morning. This is especially interesting when you consider that a number of Lunasa sites were near hills in Ireland named Sifan, which meant the seat of Fionn, and the character Fionn is known as a double of Lou. This, and the fact that the festival is celebrated primarily on hills, indicates that Lou is a god of hills and of mountains. In light of this fact, I wonder if the color red mentioned in the Dinshenka poem 
might refer to the sunset and sunrise on a hilltop, which can take on a red or a golden hue. Lu is also associated with the weather, specifically rain and thunder, which was considered to be his voice. There was an expectation that it would likely rain on the day of Lunasaw as well, that is, later when it was celebrated on a single day, and this seems to demonstrate the favor of the god. Lu is often pictured with a spear, though none of the remaining myths mention why. He was known as Lu the Many-Skilled, and Lu of the Long Arm. He was said to be killed by three gods at the sacred hill Ishnok, and those three gods were killed in turn at Teltu, one of his major festival sites. Lu seems to be associated with the number three, therefore. For instance, his festival was said to last three days, and furthermore, representations of the god Mercury in Roman Gaul, which are assumed to be Lu, show him with three faces. Also, the Corlac head, a carved stone head with three faces, found in County Cavan in the mid-19th century, is likely a survival of Lunasaw festivities from 2,000 years ago in that area. There are stories that a stone head was brought to the top of a hill for the duration of the festival in more than one place. If you haven't seen the Corlac head, I made a post about it on Instagram recently, and you can go take a look if you like. So to sum it up, Liu is represented as a multi-talented young god who won farming knowledge in a battle against an older god. He's associated with hills, weather, and the harvest, and he is generous to humankind, especially at the beginning of August, when he holds a festival in honor of one or more of the important women in his life. The other god who appears significantly in the folklore of Lunasaw is called Krom Duv, which, as I said earlier, means dark and crooked. He was said to be bent because he carried the first grains of wheat over to Ireland on his back. Apparently quite a few grains of wheat. He was also responsible for bringing night and day and the seasons to the world a very long time ago. He is represented as the chief god in Ireland before Christianity came, and in some stories he was shown in a battle of wits with St. Patrick who wins the fruits of the harvest from him. The St. Patrick legends depicting Cromduv are representative of Christianity's ultimate triumph over paganism in the country. It's obvious that Cromduv played a key role in Lunasa's celebrations at some point, because Donach Cromduv, Cromduv Sunday, was actually the name for the festival in a good number of places since the Middle Ages. There is a widespread story of an interaction between St. Patrick and a pagan king, sometimes Daria, and sometimes Cromduv. In these stories, typically, St. Patrick goes to a certain site where he hopes to build a church. When his builders run out of food, he asks the pagan king of the area for help. The pagan king has a bull, which he knows is in the habit of killing everyone who comes near it, so he sends St. Patrick that bull in answer to his request for food. Miraculously, the bull does not kill Patrick and his buddies. Rather, it placidly offers itself to them to be slaughtered and they eat the bull. However, Patrick asks his men that the bones and hide be saved, so when the pagan asks for the bull back, since it didn't fulfill its duty, St. Patrick puts the remaining pieces back together, and the bull returns magically to life. There are two endings to this story. Sometimes the pagan king, witnessing the miracle, converts to Christianity. In the other version, he is killed by the bull. The resurrected bull is a very common feature of Lunasaw stories, because of which Maria McNeil indicates there was likely a sacrifice of a bull involved in the earlier festivals, and the bull was somehow symbolically revived, whether that means it was replaced by a new young bull that would serve the same purpose next year, or whether it was stuffed and paraded in procession as if it had come back to life. In one of these stories, Cromduv couldn't be baptized until he was buried up to his neck in the ground for three days, during which 
there were terrible rain and thunderstorms, reaching their peak on the third day. In another related tale, St. Patrick has a threshing contest with the pagan figure. In this one, he has promised Patrick as much corn as a man can thresh in one day. Patrick enlists the help of a giant, and thus wins all of the pagan's corn. Always on the lookout for loopholes, in another story, St. Patrick is offered as much corn as a horse can carry from Cromduve's barn full of grain, and Patrick, in possession of an extremely capable magical horse, takes all of the corn in one go. There are a number of tales about hidden underground treasure at Lunasaw sites, and we can assume they are representative of Cromduve's corn stores underground in the earth, where they are kept until they grow above ground. The very compelling story of Cromduve features Patrick, the fairies, and the theme of burial underground. It goes like this. The fairies are concerned, in the new Christian paradigm, whether they would be permitted to go to heaven on Judgment Day with the rest of the Christians. They ask Cromduve, Patrick's servant in this story, who's gathering wood at the time, if he will ask Patrick their earnest question during his blessing of the sacraments during Mass. Cromduve asks Patrick, and after the Mass is over, Patrick warns him that he's in big trouble, because the answer is no. The fairies will not get into heaven, and they will kill him when he tells them so. So Patrick tells him to go to the place he met them, dig himself a grave, and lie in it under a crossed spade and shovel. He does so, and it is the only thing that saves him when the fairies whip up a deadly thunder and lightning storm later. Maybe you're noticing a similarity between the figure of Lou in relationship to Baylor, the old god, and St. Patrick's rivalry with Crom Duve. In fact, very little information remains connecting Lou with the Festival of Lunasa, and the legends surrounding in anything but the etymology and earliest sources, which is actually rather strange, considering the festival is very clearly named after Lou, who is also undisputably an ancient Celtic god of great importance, hence the number of places named after him in the Celtic world. At the same time, a great number of later stories are retained about the dark and crooked Crom Duve, and they tend to reference a struggle with St. Patrick. His loss of these battles ensures access to the fruits of the harvest in the stories, which we know begin around the 1st of August, Lunasa. So, a festival of the harvest is celebrated for Lou, who we know won a battle against an unfair and violent older ruler, after which he was allowed to make some decisions about the cycles of nature and the harvest. And later, in Christian times, we hear nothing about Lou, though his festival continues with great enthusiasm all over Ireland, taking on the name Donach Crom Duve, referencing the unpleasant and conquered pagan god who was responsible for both the weather and the harvest. I'll share Mara McNeil's interpretation of the situation in her amazing book, The Festival of Lunasa, the only scholarly full-length book on the subject. She says it's beyond doubt that the reason Lou has disappeared from the popular tradition around this holiday is because he was replaced, wholesale, by St. Patrick, who, as you probably know, is famous for banishing snakes and also paganism from Ireland. In the myths, Lou battled an older, scarier god and replaced him with the more generous rulership, which provided sustenance to humankind. But when people wanted to tell a story about how a Christian ruler won a battle against an earlier power, it made sense for him to battle the ugly dark god who withholds the crops, rather than the charismatic god of light and plenty. It was an easy choice. All they had to do was change the name, from Lou to Patrick. This is the Scottish ballad The Lama's Tide by the Corries.
The temporary burials of Crom Duve, described in both the story of the fairy's question and the story of the resurrected bull, might reflect the rituals performed in the early Irish Lunasaw festival, with the corlac head and similar stone heads that were placed on tops of hills during the festival. It could be that in the older stories lost to time, Lou imprisoned Crom Duve by burying him up to his head in the earth for the beginning of the harvest so that we people could enjoy the bounty of his storehouse as the corn's potency rose above ground, maybe as a consequence of Cromdew's struggle to escape his imprisonment in the earth. Perhaps the taboo of harvesting too early that remained in folk tradition came from this idea that we have to wait until Cromdew has been suitably subdued by Lou. The bright side of the appropriation of the Lou stories on behalf of St. Patrick in Ireland is that they are still here, and people are still climbing Crowpatrick the last Sunday of every July, which, don't tell them, but in light of what we know about the history of Lunasaw, is an extremely pagan thing to do. Now that you've heard some of the legends of this festival, I'll give you a rundown of what seems to have been the general agenda for the pre-Christian celebration of this festival. To begin, it seems it was important that nobody began the harvest until a ceremonial first sheaf was cut by the leader of the community or head of the household. This first cutting may have been brought to a height and buried as an offering to the hill god, Lu or Fion. A large communal feast would be held, made of the first fruits of the harvest, and it would be important that all members of the community and family took part in consuming it. The festival may have lasted either three days or a week. A stone head may have then been placed on top of a hill, perhaps as part of a ritual dramatization of a battle between Lou and Crom Duve, who loses and is subdued and possibly buried up to the neck while the festivities continue, and Lou takes on the leadership role during that time. There was an expectation that it might rain on the first day of the festival, and this might be a sign of the weather god's favor and satisfaction that the first fruits had been offered to him before the feasting and harvesting began. The young people would then climb to a hilltop together and pick berries. When they returned, they would make sure everybody had some of them, especially the old and sick and those unable to climb the hill for other reasons. Perhaps a bull would be sacrificed at a shrine at the bottom of the hill and symbolically resurrected the next day. Later customs involved riding horses into water, maybe related to this bull sacrifice, as some of the earlier examples say cows were bathed at Lunasa. There may have been a ritual bathing of important animals at this time. Almost all of the reports indicate that people danced on the mountaintop. And in Ganyamore in Donegal, the best dancer won his choice of a bride at one point in history. 
People were making matches at this time, but they were not marrying, per se. That was more appropriately done in the spring. There's an old saying that explains this. The sheaf that is bound in the harvest will be opened in the spring, it says. A fight might have taken place on the mountain between groups that lay on either side of the hill, reflective of the battle between the weather god and the harvest god. Later, faction fighting on this holiday shows the theme carried into modern celebrations of Lunasa. At the end of the celebrations, some sort of concluding ceremony would likely take place that showed Krom Duv was in power again, and Lu would decline in power until the same time next year. Now, I will offer my suggestions for how you might like to celebrate the beginning of the harvest yourself. You might like to make a big symbolic deal of the first time you harvest potatoes or corn or berries or another important plant from your garden. If you've already begun harvesting, that's okay. Just focus on a plant you haven't harvested yet. It could be your new plant, Muse. You could undertake your Lunasa or Lamas celebration on August 1st, as many people do, or July 31st, which is the new moon. August 12th is also an option, or whenever the harvest begins in your region. The date varies so much that really whatever feels best and most possible to you would be the best time to celebrate. You could cut this chosen bed of vegetation with a special knife. Or if you can get a hold of a sickle, use that, of course. And once you've done that, you could walk in a circle, sunwise, that is clockwise, three times, and say a prayer, asking for plenty and protection in the interval until the next harvest. You might share these first fruits, whether they be potatoes or berries, with as many people as possible, maybe in a special dinner. The more you eat, and the more you share the better the harvest and the year will be, according to tradition. You might consider offering something to the old god in the earth who gave you the food, or to the ingenuity of the young god who taught you to get it from the earth on the top of a hill. You could bury the first sheaf, berries, potato, or whatever in the ground at the top of a hill, combining in one act the darkness of the under-earth where all riches come from, and the brightness of the air and the heights, the hill god's seat. You could climb to the top of a building if you don't have a hill handy and watch the weather move over the land. You could find a cave and leave an offering there, if it's biodegradable, and while you're in there, think about the crooked dark crom dew. You might like to go camping or hiking somewhere special. Sing songs, dance, decide who out of your friends you want to marry, give them a bracelet made out of berries, and be sure to leave it there in the special place when you leave. It might be fun or scary to craft a sculpture of a three-faced god and display it somewhere high up where you live for the duration of three days. Those are all the suggestions I have for you this month. Most of the information contained in this podcast came from the most excellent book, The Festival of Lunasa by Margaret McNeil. And thank you for abiding with me in this exploration of Old Lama's Tide or Lunasa. I hope yours is rich with plenty and variety and that you feel the great gift of the Earth's generosity on this special and age-old feast. I'll talk to you soon.